Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca Frady, your host. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. Today with us, we have Elisheva Liss, a trained sex therapist. I'm actually going to have you tell us a little bit about yourself professionally and religiously so we know a little bit about you. Sure. Hi, I'm Elisheva. Um, I actually like to be very specific. I don't call myself a sex therapist because there is a private organization called ASEC, which is an institution that, a private institution that certifies sex therapists, and they've kind of monopolized the term sex therapist, and I haven't done their training. So even though I, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, that's my official degree and background, and I ended up with an accidental specialty treating sexual dysfunction. So that's sort of <laughs> how I ended up in this niche. Okay. Well, it's an honor to have you back on. And Thank I you. have really been enjoying your posts, your newsletters, and your content that you provide. I find it extremely directed toward our community, and you have a lot of valuable insights. So thank you for that. Thank you. Okay, so I invited you on today specifically to talk about issues pertaining to our community and the war and how it's been affecting us. And specifically, let's start with just telling us some of the issues that have come up for couples and for families since the war have started. Sure. It's not unusual for me to come on a show and a, a podcast and interview, and I'm not usually so nervous about it at this point, but this this time right now in, in world history and Jewish history and human history, I think has got a lot of us just feeling very on edge, very emotional, myself included. So I'm going to apologize in advance if I get a little emotional while we're talking about this because I just, I don't know how not to. <laughs> so that, that's just sort of by way of, you know, personal introduction. Part of me wants to say that this is sort of uncharted territory, unprecedented, but sadly it's not, you know, this happens every couple of generations. But I think for people of, of our generation, I don't even know if we're the same generation, but, you know, people who are, you know, younger than, I guess, you know, 75 or whatever, you know, we've, we've not encountered this level of tragedy, I guess, depending on what country you're coming from, because um, speaking from a, you know, sort of a Western perspective, um, what we're dealing with now is, is gradations of trauma or trauma. This is not the first or only war going on in the world, but what we've been privy to from a digital perspective, the level of graphic pictures, videos, descriptions, information. As a Jewish community, we're a relatively small nation. And so everybody probably, most people that I know of have, you know, not more than one or two degrees of separation, certainly from people who are in Israel, but even from people who are affected more directly. You know, so there are these ripple effects of vicarious trauma and worry and anger and sadness, you know, so many different feelings, emotional feelings, psychological feelings, religious feelings, you know, theological struggles that come up for people. And I think a lot of us are just kind of flooding. I think there's just, uh, you know, a lot of thoughts, a lot of feelings, a lot of fears. And I think a lot of it is also compounded by this sort of digital experience that when people go online and, you know, thank God we do have government political leaders who are standing with Israel and acknowledging the truth that there are a frightening amount of masses and voices and academics out there who are clearly filled with a lot of hatred and propaganda, which I think really, you know, they talk about how when a person has been, God forbid, abused, obviously that's, you know, horrific and traumatic, but something that often compounds the trauma is when the survivor goes and tells someone who's supposed to help them 
and they are not believed or they're trivialized or they're gaslit. And that just makes it so much worse. And I think that Israel and the Jewish people, I want to be careful to say Israelis and the Jewish people, because there are many non-Jews in Israel who are also, who fight for the Israeli army and who stand by, you know, is they're, they're Israelis, you know, and, and they, they stand with Israel and with, with Jews. So it's not only a, a Jewish thing, but obviously most of the people in Israel are Jews and most of the people affected by this um, world over are Jews. So, um, but I, I want to be inclusive, at least in the, you know, as a caveat, but the, the pushback, the appropriation of language, uh, like words like genocide, which, you know, Jews were a victim of genocide, Palestinians were not. And then, you know, kind of like this, this hijacking of certain terminology and saying like, no, we're, you're not being abused. We're being abused where they're being abused is I think creating like another layer of national trauma and national fear about what's going to be, what's going on, who are our friends, who are, who would be marching with like horrible signs and sounds and chants about, you know, terrible things that they want to happen to Israel, to Jews, to Westerners. You're saying lots of important things, the hijacking of the language, the gaslighting, the victim, and all these different things that we're aware of on a personal basis for a victim of abuse. But you're sort of translating that onto a nation, onto the narrative that the media and campuses are using and playing. And we're thinking, how can you take what you just saw live streamed by the people who committed those crimes and... and call them militants or call them, what was the word? Freedom fighters. Freedom fighters. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah. So th- that runs really deep. And I heard someone say, I didn't see not one feminist organization stand up and say, we believe you. Women were violated. We have to stand by the democratic entity in the Middle East that actually provides a safe space for women, for the LGBTQ people. There's a lot of that flip-flop happening. Yeah, particularly in my field, you know, the, the mental health space, which does tend trend somewhat liberal. Many Jews and Israelis and allies of Jews and Israelis people who are, you know, like I said before, those ripple effects have been talking a little bit behind the scenes. I've had at least two or three colleagues that I know of who have very large online followings reach out in tears to say, like, all I posted was, you know, like praying for my brothers and sisters in Israel, you know, nothing against even, you know, Hamas, you know, not for, you know, for sure nothing against, you know, Palestinians or Gaza. And they got so much vitriol and hate and people cursing them out and death threats. And they lost, you know, not that this matters in the scheme of things, but they lost like hundreds or thousands of followers, which, I mean, who cares about followers at a time like this, but it's just an indication of how quickly people are to jump from, you know, the facade of like, oh, we're worried about civilian Palestinians to what it really, for some people, not for everyone, but for, you know, it really unveils a certain anti-Semitism or Jew hatred or what, like an excuse to vilify Israel and and often by extension, Jews and and Jew allies and Israel allies everywhere. You know, there's just, there's there's something that I've heard of, it's called, they, they call it sometimes the ring theory, but that's confusing because there's also a ring theory in mathematics and in literature. <laughs> So there's a ring theory in psychology. I don't know who who coined this, but it's this concept of the ripple effect where there's, let's say, the people who are in the middle of, if you picture, let's say, concentric circles, you know, a little dot in the middle with like, you know, bigger circles coming out of it. So people who are most affected by whatever an event is. So let's say in this case, it would be people who were at, you know, the, the kibbutz or the festival or, you know, who actually were personally there and had to run for their lives or who were injured or god forbid kidnapped or not i mean it happened that you know people who are kidnapped their families who you know i can't imagine a greater hell than you know waiting to hear about 
you know, hostages that people love and are wanting to see again and praying for it, right? So that would be like the core nucleus of this, you know, people who are most deeply affected. And you probably hear I'm like choking up just to imagine, like, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one waking up every morning with a knot in my stomach and running to the news, which we shouldn't be doing, of course, but like running to the news to see like, did they, did they release any more hostages? Is there any more information? And and I don't know any of the hostages personally, but you know I think that that anyone with any kind of empathy is is feeling it on some level. But so you have that core nucleus of people who are most directly affected, and then you have an outer an outer layer beyond that of people who are a little bit like one degree removed. So let's say people who live in the region but like weren't part of the massacre, or people who are you know next level out from someone who was killed or murdered, actually, not just killed, murdered or, or injured or, or, or kidnapped. And then uh, the next degree out would be, let's say, people who, have, who are on the front lines, you know, members of the IDF or people who are love, you know, immediate family of members of the IDF. I'm like kind of on one of the outer layers personally. You know, I have close family members in Israel. I don't have any close family members at the moment fighting in the IDF, but I have extended family members who are in the IDF and, and extended family members who are, you know, in, in areas not too far off. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one in terms of those like sort of concentric circles. So I think that the benefit of thinking about it this way of, of this, you know, whether it's the ring theory or, you know, degrees of separation is that because of the vicarious trauma, because of the tremendous amount of very vivid, very real, very graphic, terribly upsetting, disturbing, consuming information that we're seeing, it could render us incapacitated. You know, I, like I, I've heard people say, people who don't specifically, you know, have a, a personal connection to anyone who's in Israel or on the front line thing, like, I can't, I can't sleep, I can't eat, I can't, how am I supposed to work? How am I supposed to, you know, go through my day and find, you know, in, enjoy my lunch? Like, how, you know, how, how can I do anything that feels any kind of normal or enjoyable when there's this kind of suffering going on? And it's such a valid question. And, you know, on a more existential or global or theological level, it's a question that I think a lot of us have struggled with in general, even before this war and this crisis, you know, this kind of suffering, you know, in other parts of the world as well. But I think because, you know, Israel just gets like stuck under a microscope and because it is our brothers and sisters, you know, I don't know anyone in North Korea, nobody I know knows anyone in North Korea either. And so while in I daven every day, I pray for peace on earth, and I, I, I try to conjure and think about like suffering everywhere. There's just more of those degrees of separation, and it's not as in my face, it's not as front and center in terms of awareness. But I think being a person who, on the one hand, cares about what's going on in the world at large, cares about human suffering, cares about national suffering, cares about individuals that we're aware of who are suffering terribly, and then on the other hand, what can we do to help? What can we do to make a difference? So for me personally, and I'm speaking almost more personally as a, as a human right now than as a therapist, but I guess like because I'm a therapist, I can speak about these things a little bit more publicly. The first couple of days after, after Yantif, it, it, like most people, I don't think I'm unique in this way. It felt like a punch in the stomach. You know, it just felt like such a shock. It's some as Torah. We're supposed to be like singing and dancing and rejoicing and, you know, having fun with family and, and having nice food. And, you know, that's what that day was supposed to be about. And it's a, it was like, what a massacre? Like it was just, you know, really like from Yagon to Simcha, you know, then from Simcha to Yagon, you know, the, the opposite of what, what, you know, we want it to be. And I think for a day or two, we were just in, in shock. And then an interesting thing started happening. We started to get, besides for all the horrific videos, we were getting another genre of videos out of Israel, which was these young, beautiful chayalim, 
making these videos, asking us to daven, to learn Torah, to do chesed, thanking us, how outreaches they're thanking us, you know, for these like little contributions that we're trying to send from afar, telling us, go hug your children, laugh with your children, do that because we can't wait to get back to our children. It gives us chizuk, it gives us encouragement and uplifts us to know that you guys are getting out of bed in the morning, going to shul, going to synagogue, praying, putting on tefillin and tzitzis. And I understand that not everyone can relate. And there's, I, I think there's a little bit of tension or maybe more than a little bit of tension around religious messaging at a time like this. It's very sensitive and very personal, you know, and I think there's a difference from when it's coming from soldiers versus when it's coming from, let's say, another personality who might be trying to sort of push the agenda that they anyway like to push. <laughs> But there was something about these soldiers who were risking their lives, young, holy, brave soldiers risking their lives to protect us and our country and, and the people there who are essentially telling us, please don't surrender to despair. You know, please don't cave into depression. Please don't become paralyzed and incapacitated by this tragedy. We need to stay strong. And in order for us to stay strong, we need to garner strength from, from our brothers and sisters across the world, you know, the support and the and the prayers. So at least for me, and I think that for other people also, that sort of shift from like seeing these like horrific like news of like, oh my God, more people, more people, just the, the terrible news to the information that we were getting from people on the front line saying, here's what we need from you. We need, you know, equipment and we need supplies and we need, and don't send this and this instead. Like, I think that kind of mobilized us. And I think that if like a mentor here in New York had said to me, you know what, Alishava, you can do, you can go and say to Hillen, you can go and pray for the, I would have felt like, please, that's such a cop out. That's ridiculous. And, you, know, you know, these people, half my age are going and risking their lives and I'm going to open up my little Hillen. Like what that's, what's that really doing? Right. But somehow hearing it from the soldiers themselves and their, their mothers and their fathers and their, and their, and their siblings saying, please, please keep praying for us. You know, keep, do, do, do a, a kindness, do a chesed, do a mitzvah in my marriage. Like, you know what? If you're telling me to do that, then that's what I want to go do this minute. And not that I don't want to do it anyway, but it just hits a little bit differently in that realm. That being said, I also feel like just because I didn't necessarily intend to go off on this sort of like theological piece, but just because that's where I guess my heart is taking me. I think that in times of trauma and in times of the tremendous anxiety and anger and fear and all the huge trauma, trauma magnified feelings that we have, it's not a good time to be judgmental of ourselves and our feelings and our reactions. So there are some people who like throw themselves into doubling down on their uh, spiritual pursuits and religious convictions. And, you know, so the people for whom that is comforting or helpful or meaningful, that's wonderful. And it seems to give a lot of strength to people there too. But there are a lot of people who have the opposite response and they're really rumbling and struggling in their relationship with God or with observance either before this or because of this. And that's so, you know, understandable also. And so I think at a time like this, again, depending on where, where a person is in their relationship to all the tragedy, we need to like kind of take care of our physical, medical, mental health first and foremost. And that I think kind of like will allow for people to then take the next, pra you know, practical, pragmatic step and say, okay, what can I do practically? Can I, you know, pack, you know, pack packages to send to people who will need it? Can I volunteer my efforts? Can I make monetary donations? Can I pray? Can I call people I know in Israel? Like one thing that someone, this hadn't happened by accident, I'm on a listserv of uh, a lot of religious therapists and they were asking for people to donate time to speak to people, you know, just kind of do uh, free sessions. And I would have loved to do that, but I don't have a specialty treating trauma. And I don't think it's responsible for me to offer my time to do work that I don't, I'm not really qualified to do. 
So instead, I, I started just reaching out to people that first I started with family and friends, close family and close friends in Israel, and just checking in, see how they're doing. And then I was like, you know what, let me just reach out to like people that I know in Israel, even if I don't, if I'm not regularly in touch with them, but I know you're there and I'm just thinking of you. And I've noticed that like people are very grateful to be thought of. So it's just, it gives like, I was walking on the boardwalk with my husband the other day and this woman who didn't seem to be Jewish, I mean, she's wearing a cross and <laughs> she didn't seem to be Jewish. She yelled out to us. She said, I want you guys to know I'm praying for Israel. My whole group is praying for Israel. And it, it made me tear up. And this was just like some stranger, you know, <laughs> on, on Rockaway Beach. So I was thinking like, if that, those little, and you know, I'm getting messages from non-Jewish colleagues or people that I barely know saying, hey, just checking in. I know you have family in Israel. It means something. Our hearts are kind of cracked open. And so I think we're feeling that that's something that we can do. Reach out to people that we know who are a little further in on those concentric circles and say, you know, I don't know really what to say, but I'm thinking of you and I'm praying for you. And I just, if you want to talk, I'm here. That's there. There's something very therapeutic and very regulating about getting outside of our own head, our own stomach, our own feelings and connecting with other people, whether it's in a way to contribute or just say like, how are you holding up? Yeah, this is so hard. And kind of like talking, giving each other strength, giving each other kind of encouragement and empowerment. He makes a lot of uh, movement is good. Movement is good for us as opposed to like kind of like sitting with the pain. Yeah. So I'd like to transition to our second topic for today, which is many of us have children and some of them are older and some of them know a little bit about sexuality. Some don't know much. And we could either decide we're shielding them from everything, which is probably impossible because they can be exposed to information on the school bus or friends or just hearing you, the adults around them talk. How do we, and I saw you talk about that in one of your blog posts, we want to preempt the introduction of sexual violence. We, We want to introduce sexual pleasure or the healthy sexuality before they are introduced to sexual violence in order not to skew their perceptions and not to damage, you know, that healthy innocence that we would like to preserve. So can you share some of your insight on this? Yeah, sure. I think you're referencing that that email. I, I send out a weekly email. You know, I guess I should double back a little bit on, on the work that I do. We had touched upon this at the beginning is that, you know, first I started doing, you know, kind of couples work because that's what I was trained to do. And in the course of my couples work, I, when I was taught to assess a couple sexual relationship as part of the learning about a couple and seeing what's working for them and what's not. And then that kind of snowballed into learning how to treat couples that are struggling in their uh, sexual relationships. What that led to fairly quickly was when I would go to give talks on educating grownups about sex because, you know, we they hadn't been properly educated as kids because most people aren't. And very often the Q&A, so let's say I would speak for 45 minutes, an hour, and then like the entire Q&A would almost always evolve into people saying like, how can we do better for our kids? You know, like I grew up, I got married, I had, you know, whether people had negative or traumatic sexual experiences as kids, or they were just clueless and then they had to play catch up or they had body shame. Like there were just so many problems that could have been mitigated or even completely avoided with better, healthier, more wholesome sex education. And this is across the religious or, or secular spectrum. Like any anyone would benefit from understanding sexual pleasure, safety, consent, propriety, better than if you, they've done surveys where they've asked people, you know, do you feel like you got good sex education? The vast majority of people feel like they have not. And this is not a critique on specifically parents or institutions. I believe that most parents and institutions are probably trying their best, but they also weren't properly educated. We're living in a time where it's a post-sexual revolution and sexuality is much more out there. 
um, sexual content is much more out there. Nobody really has the luxury um, to to think that they're going to shelter their kids anymore. It's, it's very almost impossible to shelter. Um, not that I even think that that would have been ideal in the first place, but it's not even realistic at this point. What I and a lot of my colleagues, I'm not the first person to do this. I'm just, you know, one of the voices have been advocating for is that, you know, the best places for children to hear sexuality information and education is from parents or other trusted adults. Ideally, I think it should be parents if you can, rather than what I call, you know, like the alternatives, which would be, let's say, peers, pornography, or predators, you know, those, that's really the alternative. Um, or sometimes in, in other cases, let's say when people do grow up in very insular or religious communities, they're not educated. So they kind of draw their own conclusions from whatever limited exposure they do have. And then when they get to a point where they're ready to get married, they have this like avalanche of information and misconceptions that they have to contend with afterwards. And that's a lot of what my practice is comprised of, you know, kind of plan- trying to play catch up from people's like misconceptions and shame and confusion about sexuality. So bringing that back to what we were discussing, one of the problems that has happened, I think, in the last generation or so is that we started to educate a little bit more about sexual safety, right? So you have schools who are doing these programs, which are really, really important about body boundaries, about, you know, they used to call it good touch, bad touch, appropriate safety, whatever. Every every couple of years, they change the jargon to make it a little more specific, a little more, you know, aligned with the research. And it's vital. It's critical. I'm not trying to take that away. But what happens is when you have young people who are only being educated about sexual safety, which, you know, by extension means, you know, we're trying to avoid sexual danger and inappropriate touch or, or violation, and then they don't have any paradigm for pleasure, consent, positive touch. What are these like warm and fuzzy thoughts and feelings that are coming up in their brains and their bodies and their thoughts and their feelings with regard to feeling, you know, the fantasy, attraction, excitement, arousal, touch, which are very much a part of psychosexual development. And it doesn't only hit right before you get married or even right when you hit puberty. It's, a, it's an ongoing development. So when they, when they only have like explicit knowledge of dangerous, scary or negative, or, or sinful sexual content, and they don't have the more uh, healthy, positive, relational, intimate paradigm, then by the time they're ready to have an intimate relationship, it's like you, you're, the seesaw is too far down on the other side, and we're, there's like a lot of negativity that you have to plow through. And so what a lot of us are trying to do is encourage parents. I, I believe it should be parents, not schools. I was asked me to come do school curricula and maybe one time I'll, at some point I'll do that. But to really empower parents to teach their kids like an ongoing dialogue about body awareness, um, emotional awareness, touch awareness in a positive way also, you know, about pleasure. And, and it doesn't have to run counter to religious values. On the contrary, it could be very much in keeping with religious values. The emails that I send out every week, there's there's a book in Tanakh and in, in the Torah that's Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs. And it's a ballad to love and romance and eroticism. And every week we look at another verse in the Song of Songs and try to extrapolate life and relationship lessons from the words of the Song of Songs. Because I think for a lot of people, having a religious, theologically sanctioned, holy paradigm for this information is very helpful. Something that I created a few years ago because I would go to all these talks and I would be like, you know, I wish I had another couple of hours to talk about sex education. And then I would come and do an hour or two on sex education. I'm like, I wish I had five more hours to do this. And eventually I just ended up creating a digital course and it was pre-recorded. So like it would be something that people could just take on their own time. And I didn't have to like get on a plane and go teach it to people. It's, it's now um, accessible. And it's called Sacred Not Secret, A Religious Family's Guide to Healthy Holy Sexuality Education. I actually called it A Religious Family's Guide. But many people who take it are not necessarily parents. Some of them are people who don't have children yet. Some people are not even in, in a relationship or married. They're kind of re-educating their own inner child. 
And the reason that I'm mentioning it is because I did a campaign once this war broke out. I was trying, you know, we're all trying to think in our own ways, like, what can we do to help? How can we make a difference? I'm like, here in New York, I don't have like a gun to go and protect people and see. I wish I could like roll up my sleeves and do something meaningful in Israel. And we're trying, we're making donations and we're praying and we're, we're doing all the things that we can do. But this is something that's of mine that I could give. So I created a, a code to reduce the price of the course. And also we're donating the proceeds from the course to various causes in Israel that are attending to the injured, the traumatized, the displaced families, like everyone who is affected by this war. So if you want, we can put it in your show notes, but I could just tell you if you go on lhwlist.com, the, the course is called Sacred Not Secret. And the code, the code is AC because it was from the affordability campaign. I used to, I sometimes run an affordability campaign. It's half the rate. And then the proceeds go to Israel. So that's just, I feel like it w- it helps on two prongs, meaning it gives those of us whose kids are being exposed to these horrific rape pictures and, and videos and information, a paradigm to be able to start educating our kids in a more wholesome and positive way about what good and healthy and loving intimate sexuality is so that we don't have to turn a current trauma into a future trauma and also raise some money for causes in Israel. And I also have a code for families in Israel to be able to take the course for free, which is not something I usually do. But if there are parents or educators or you know individuals in Israel who would like to take the course because they want to know this or as a distraction for what they're dealing with, they should reach out to me via my website and I will give them a code to enter to be able to take the course for free if they're in Israel. That's so beautiful. How do you tell a, your 13-year-old daughter who is hearing the word rape, how do you explain that in a lefatrila way? So to me, the idea that a 13-year-old has never heard the word so what rape age? is very, very, very busy. Average, what, what age right? it's very, very would you average. introduce that? Right. So that's probably the single most common question that I get asked, you know, at lectures or in emails or whatever. At what age do you start teaching sex ed? And my answer is at every age. So when it comes up in their life, that's when you introduce it. Yeah. So, well, no, I mean, yes, not, not rape, but when, when the question comes up or something relevant comes up. That's- yeah. So f- there's like kind of different ways that it could come up, meaning that your your child could come across something that they read or hear, or like you could, the example that I often give in talks is like, you're you're walking in Central Park and you see two people making out on a park bench and your kids says, oh, what are they doing? You know, like there are plenty of opportunities that come up. I mean, even just now, like this morning I was reading the Parsha and like Avram was worried that Sarah, Sarah was going to get kidnapped. She did get kidnapped. Like, what did Paro want to do? What does Rashi say happens? You know, he wouldn't be able to have sex because so he wanted to rape her. And I think in every single Parsha in Barashas, there are <laughs> opportunities, you know, a lot of them even in the Pshad, and certainly there's a lot of Rashi's, you know, opportunities to talk about sexuality, both pleasurable, loving, intimate sexuality and violent sexuality, you know, Dina and Shrem and Saddam and, 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 uh, and more. And, and this, like, you know, Sarah getting kidnapped and you know, so we want to make sure that our children's first brush with anything sexual ideally isn't negative. But for example, and I go through like I have one of the lessons in the courses goes through at different ages, like different opportunities to teach, you know, a, a funny analogy is like if you're a person of faith, right, you believe in God and you believe in Torah and you want to teach your children about God and Emuna and a relationship with him and prayer and Shabbos and kosher. Imagine if someone said to you, like, at what age do you teach your children about Judaism? <laughs> it would be like a funny thing to ask a religious person. It's like uh, all the time, like at different, like, it's just, it's like permeated. Now, sexuality is like a very specific, big, scary word for a lot of people. But sexuality is so much more than, you know, how you make babies or intercourse. It's it's the whole gamut and spectrum of love and eroticism and touch and fantasy. And there's sort of a lead up that goes to that. When we 
talk about how important it is to hold babies, that newborn babies need skin to skin contact, people who go to NICUs and make sure that those babies get held. We're priming those nervous systems for touch to be a form of connection, of ability to thrive, of feeling cared for and loved and nurtured. So it's not sexual, God forbid, that would be very inappropriate for a baby, but that's laying the foundation. When we teach children, when you see people who work in preschools and they hit and say, oh no, we keep our hands on our own bodies, hands are for hugging, and we ask first before we hug, we're teaching consent. If the three-year-old wants to kiss her little baby sister, right, we say, does it look like she likes that? It looks like she's crying. She doesn't like that, right? We're teaching them about respecting people's body boundaries, and we're teaching them that a kiss is supposed to feel good. It's not supposed to feel bad. We're not supposed to make someone receive our kiss that we want to give them because it's for our pleasure. We want to make sure that they're enjoying the kiss that we're giving them, right? These are There's thousands of moments in the lives of our children where we're probably already educating them towards healthy you know, relationships, love, connection, touch, intimacy. I have like these kind of cutesy word plays that I like to incorporate in, in the course and in my talks, but like the word in Hebrew for touch is lingoa, nogea, right? People say shomer negia, right? Like touching. The word we it's actually in the Parsha, nega means like an affliction, a pain, something that hurts. It could be touch, could be bad. It could be painful, but also the word, the same letter spell oneg or ta'anug, which means pleasure. Touch could be painful or it could be pleasurable depending on how it's used. Even let's say the word nishika, which means kiss, and the word neshek, same neshek means artillery or weapons. So the same thing, this energy that we have, Freud talks about this also, like the energy that we have to like reach out and make contact with another person. It could be violent or exploitative, God forbid, or it could be one of the most powerful forms of connection. And there's not any one age where you teach children about appropriate touch or inappropriate touch, about love and connection and what touch can and, and, and can't and should and should be. It, it happens in many different conversations, iterations, experiences that we have over the arc of, of our of our years of parenting the children. So to me, it feels like very bidyavet for a 13-year-old to not have any framework for it. But I will say, like, and I, I don't mean this in a judgmental or canceling kind of way, if someone's listening to this and they have a teenager who's not yet educated, it's not too late. You can just start now and and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There, I, I have my course, but if digital course is not your thing, there's books and there's I have on my website blog posts and other materials, some free content and some recommended other content that you can go to. And I think this is just like, it, it feels almost like a weird thing to be talking about in a time of crisis. But if we look at it the same way, we look at like the more expansive view of, you know, what can we do other than curl up in a ball and cry and just feel like, oh, this world is so scary right now. What can we do to help people in Israel, to help people on the front lines, to help people who are actually grieving for people they know and to help build a stronger, more resilient, more empowered, more connected nation and future. So this is one of the things that I believe very strongly. I don't know if we'll have time to get into this, but if anybody wants to sign up for the emails, also through my website, alishabalist.com, there's a pop-up bubble and you can put in your email address and you'll get these free this free content. It comes every, usually every week. Another thing that people are finding is that they feel very weird or guilty about being sexual, being intimate with their own partners at a time that like we have couples who are separated because one of them is off fighting or one of them is in the hospital recovering from a wound or, you know, it just kind of, there's like this survivor guilt, you know, and it's so understandable and so, uh, I think, empathetic. And at the same time, I think that the message that we're getting for the most part from the people who are really kind of front and center is they're telling us like, we don't want to surrender to despair. We want, and if, if you can't, if you're not up to it, if you're not in a position where you can have sex right now, then 
you know, that's no, no one should be telling you, yes, you have to. But if it's something that you want, if you want to reach out for that comfort, for that connection, for that, even just hold each other and cry on each other and, and talk about it. And then if that leads into more intimate lovemaking, please don't feel like you're doing something petty or wrong or selfish. The best antidote to trauma, to pain, to hatred is love, is connection, is resilience. And, and is keeping as many people as we can feeling bolstered by the resources that we do have. And I think we're seeing on a national level, one of the things that to me at least is feeling a little more hopeful is seeing the tremendous amount of connection and love and support and contribution that's going on worldwide and nationwide from Jews of all kinds of, you know, walks of, of Judaism and, and, sec- and secular people and Christians and, you know, people coming together to take care of each other because the good people of the world have to look out for one another, have to connect to one another, have to share love, have to strengthen each other and touch and love and intimacy are one of the ways that we can keep, keep strong in, in that way. Yeah. I'm just going to revert back a detailed question. Child, when you're introducing concepts of violence and war to your children, I don't know if graphic, but how scary do you want it to sound? Do you want to give them a very part of like, I remember my my daughter came home from school, she's six, and she was saying they had a surprise war. So she focused on the surprise, the war part didn't resonate. And she was saying it like, oh, in Israel, there was a surprise war. And then I sort of like said... (laughs) Do you know what a surprise war means? It's a war that we didn't know about. It was surprise. It's not a good surprise. So that's when things started to shift. And I, I would like to know how, you know, do we want to scare them? She, she did realize that this is something scary and something we don't want. Yeah. Do we wait for them to ask for that information? Do we present it in a very par of way, waiting for them to pick up on things? Or do we actually try to instill a little bit of seriousness and fear into them? trying to drive down the point? It's a really good question. You know, I'm always reluctant to publicly answer questions that are a little too specific because our relationship with our kids, our relationships with our kids are idiosyncratic to the kid and to ourselves and to the context and what are they, you know, our communities and the schools and the and their temperaments. I, I think that we do see even before this an epidemic of anxiety in children nowadays. And so I would never want to promote the idea of instilling more fear in kids than they're already going to pick up on from the world. <laughs> that being said, I completely understand why you wanted to correct this as this feeling that you got that your daughter heard that like, oh, yeah, surprise, something fun happened in Israel. It's a party, you know, like obviously like that was, you know, it, not information that was going to be helpful for her to, you know, at some point there was going to was going to crash down on her that that's not what happened. So you needed to correct it. In general, I think that whenever we're teaching our children about something having to do with safety. So for example, like when we teach our kids to put on a seatbelt in the car, I don't think that we need to be teaching little kids or even older kids about how gruesome a car accident is when a person's not wearing a seatbelt. Like, I don't think that's necessary. (laughs) If a kid doesn't want to wear a seatbelt and then we're like having to engage with like educating them a little bit more, you know, than the matter of fact, okay, we need to put on our seatbelts. Then I think we can talk about, you know, it's important to stay safe because if we don't wear the seatbelts and the car crashes, then somebody could get hurt. We don't want people to get hurt. And the seatbelt will keep you a little bit safer if, if, you know, if the car does bump into another car, you know, it kind of like we want want to stay in a, the, the tone of our voice and the tone of our language to be calm and reassured, even though we may not feel calm or reassured ourselves. But you know, for the children, we want to try to keep it as stable as possible. Stable doesn't mean sheltered. We can give them the information and saying, you know, there's some bad people doing mean things in Israel and you 
know, we're going to, we're going to dive in and we're going to pray for them. We're going to write nice letters to the soldiers to thank them for working so hard to try to keep people as safe as they can. And you can put that more empowered spin on it for them. But I don't think that we have the luxury to shelter, but I also don't think that, especially at that age, like six is quite young. I don't, you know, there's no need to make things more graphic or detailed or scary than necessary. If they're in a peer group where let's say, you know, they're going to go play at the neighbor's house and the neighbor has teenage kids and the teenage kids have social media and there's a chance they're going to be exposed to like more, you might want to get ahead of that. And just there's some pictures and stuff going around that's a little bit scary. You know, we're going to try not to look at it because it's just, we don't want to see upsetting things. But if they do, then you have to deal with it. It's very specific to the child, the child's temperament, even for adults. I think I know for myself, I'm trying to be really careful not to, you know, click on too many pictures or videos because for myself, like, you know, as it is, I'm very sensitive to that. And I, you know, I, a lot of crying, a lot of feeling, a lot, you know, and I don't need any more. Like I, I, I don't, I don't need proof. <laughs> you know, there's this, this bizarre thing of people needing to see, you know, horrific videos and images to believe that this, the, the atrocities are happening. That's not, I'm not the audience who needs that. You're probably not the audience that needs that either. I think that arguably we need those out there for all the people who are the Holocaust deniers of 2023, but that that's not our children. So I, I think that like, you know, depending on where a person's leaning, adults and children, sometimes we need to make it a little bit more clear and real for people. And sometimes we need to kind of turn down the volume on it if it's getting to the point that we're being um, affected by our ability to function in a way that is helpful to the people in our lives and to the, the broader communities and, and global community that we can help. One last thing I wanted to ask you, and this concerns the people in Israel, families in Israel, mothers with children, perhaps whose husbands are out fighting. Mothers have been posting how they're getting a deja vu from the COVID times of being stuck at home for who knows how long. Yes, they are. What are some of the tips or, you know, words of encouragement that you can share for these wonderful brothers and sisters? You're speaking, yeah. You're talking about people in people Israel? In Israel, yeah. So when you reach out to me to do this episode, I almost said, let's skip it because Tali Rosenbaum and Rabbi Scott Khan had put out a really excellent episode on what I thought would be a similar, but I, I don't think it ended up being similar. I think that it's, you could listen to both of them and they're not, there's not a whole lot of overlap in the end. Part of my hesitation about talking about this is that I feel like, who am I to talk about this? I feel like it's, we should really should be amplifying voices of professionals, therapists, rabbis, rabbits, and like leaders in Israel who are on the front lines psychologically, spiritually, re for real, actual front lines there. And so I would encourage people to listen to their episodes. I think they did two episodes on this topic because Tali gave some really, really practical advice as a trauma therapist who lives in Israel and has seen, unfortunately, a fair share of Israel specific type of trauma. That, that being said, I do something that I'm really grateful for and proud of is I have a daughter who's studying in an overseas seminary this year, a post high school program. And generally the seminaries and the yeshivas, like their, their program is all day learning and maybe like one or two days a week or afternoons of volunteering chesed and the seminary that my daughter is in. I'm happy to say what it is to ferret. And they've sort of like regrouped and my daughter and her friends are kind of getting up in the morning and going out to help families. Everybody's being called up and they have this extra manpower. And so I think it's really great to know that people are being mobilized this way. And so if, if anyone out there is listening and they're a parent who's the household is down one parent because of the war and you could use an extra pair of hands, maybe reach out to some of these yeshivas and seminaries and see if you could get people to help you and volunteer and you know, an extra pair of hands with the kids to entertain them to play. The seminary also like ran like an event for displaced families from the South. And, you know, just to, to spread a little cheer for some of these kids who are traumatized. 
and they, they posted this on their social media. So I could share this. One of the moms came over afterwards and said, this is the first time in a week that my child let go of me because they ran like a little carnival for kids who were displaced. These kids are terribly traumatized. So reach out for support, reach out to your neighbors. You know, if you're a parent of young children and you have a neighbor with, you know, teenagers, you know, see if the teenagers can come help, if you can offer, you know, I don't know if you want to pay or see if they can just do it as a favor or whatever. But this is not a time to stand on ceremony and be proud. I think this is a time where people are tripping over their own feet, trying to figure out how they can be helpful. I wish I had more practical advice for the young parents who are home with kids who are not necessarily always going back to school right away. There is definitely stuff out there. But yeah, I, I think this is just a, a really difficult time. So if you have support, reach out for support, You know, reach out for institutions and, and organizations around because there are so many people who want to help in so many ways. There's a lot of manpower. There's a lot of money. We have to allocate it properly. Hey, thank you so much, Elisheva. This was really valuable and educational and some of your initiatives are so beautiful and generous. So thank you for the work that you do. And hopefully by the time we release this episode, some of the advice will not be needed anymore. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, thank you for <laughs> thank you for reaching out and for offering to do this interview. And yeah, like I said, like you said, I hope uh, I hope this will be obsolete very, very soon and we should hear only good things, better news, and uh, everyone should just heal from, from all this. Thank you for listening until the end. Make sure to check out the other podcasts on the Jewish Coffeehouse Network. Participate in the Blue and White Unity Campaign. The information is in the show notes. The short version is take a picture of yourself wearing white and blue or a video of yourself singing or playing a Jewish song or an Israeli song and then upload it to the bluewhiteunity.com website. You can also share it on your social media. Make sure to use hashtags bluewhiteunity and wear blue and white. I'm also looking for volunteers for future episodes. So if you have ideas, please keep reaching out. I also love hearing your feedback and stay strong, take care of yourself, be kind to others, and see you next week. <music>